Chapter One of the Gentle Grafter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leslie Walden. The Gentle Grafter by O. Henry. Chapter One, The Octopus Marooned. I trust is its weakest point," said Jeff Peters. That, I said, sounds like one of those unintelligible remarks such as, Why is a policeman? It is not, said Jeff. There are no relations between a trust and a policeman. My remark was an epitogram, an axis, a kind of multum in parvo. What it means is that a trust is like an egg, and it is not like an egg. If you want to break an egg, you have to do it from the outside. The only way to break up a trust is from the inside. Keep sitting on it until it hatches. Look at the brood of young colleges and libraries that's chirping and peeping all over the country. Yes, sir, every trust bears in its own bosom the seeds of its destruction, like a rooster that crows near a Georgia-colored Methodist camp meeting, or a Republican announcing himself a candidate for governor of Texas. I asked Jeff jestingly if he had ever, during his checkered, plaided, model, pied, and dappled career, conducted an enterprise of the class to which the word trust had been applied. Somewhat to my surprise, he acknowledged the corner. Once, said he, and the state seal of New Jersey never bit into a charter that opened up a solider and safer place of legitimate octopusing. We had everything in our favor—wind, water, police, nerve, and a clean monopoly of an article indispensable to the public. There wasn't a trust-buster on the globe that could have found a weak spot in our scheme. It made Rockefeller's little kerosene speculation look like a bucket shop. But we lost out. Some unforeseen opposition came up, I suppose, I said. No, sir. It was just as I said. We were self-curbed. It was a case of auto-suppression. There was a rift within the loot, as Albert Tennyson says. You remember I told you that me and Andy Tucker was partners for some years? That man was the most talented conniver at stratagems I ever saw. Whenever he saw a dollar in another man's hands, he took it as a personal grudge if he couldn't take it any other way. Andy was educated, too, besides having a lot of useful information. He had acquired a big amount of experience out of books, and could talk for hours on any subject connected with ideas and discourse. He had been in every line of graft, from lecturing on Palestine, with a lot of magic lantern pictures of the annual custom-made Clothiers Association convention at Atlantic City, to flooding Connecticut with bogus wood alcohol distilled from nutmegs. One spring, me and Andy had been over in Mexico on a flying trip during which a Philadelphia capitalist had paid us $2,500 for a half-interest in a silver mine in Chihuahua. Oh, yes, the mine was all right. The other half-interest must have been worth two or three thousand. I often wondered who owned that mine. In coming back to the United States, me and Andy stubbed our toes against a little town in Texas on the bank of the Rio Grande. The name of it was Bird City, but it wasn't. The town had about two thousand inhabitants, mostly men. I figured that their principal means of existence 
was in living close to tall chaparral. Most of them were stockmen and some gamblers and some horse speculators, and plenty were in the smuggling line. Me and Andy put up in a hotel that was built like something between a roof garden and a sectional bookcase. It began to rain the day we got there. As the saying is, Juniper Aquarius was sure turning on the water plugs on Mount Amphibious. Now there were three saloons in Bird City, though neither Andy nor me drank. But we could see the townspeople making a triangular procession from one to another, all day and half the night. Everybody seemed to know what to do with as much money as they had. The third day of the rain it slacked up a while in the afternoon, so me and Andy walked out to the edge of town to view the mudscape. Bird City was built between the Rio Grande and a deep wide arroyo that used to be the old bed of the river. The bank between the stream and its old bed was cracking and giving away when we saw it, on account of the high water caused by the rain. Andy looks at it a long time. That man's intellects was never idle. Then he unfolds to me an instantaneous idea that has occurred to him. Right there was an organized trust, and we walked back into town and put it on the market. First we went to the main saloon in Bird City, called the Blue Snake, and bought it. It cost us $1,200. Then we dropped in, casual, at Mexican Joe's place, referred to the rain, and bought him out for $500. The other one came easy at $400. The next morning Bird City woke and found itself an island. The river had busted through its own channel, and the town was surrounded by roaring torrents. The rain was still raining, and there was heavy clouds in the northwest, that presaged about six more mean annual rainfalls during the next two weeks. But the worst was yet to come. Bird City hopped out of its nest, waggled its pin feathers, and strolled out for its matutinal toot. Lo, Mexican Joe's place was closed, and likewise the other little doby life-saving station. So naturally the body politic emits thirsty ejaculations of surprise, and ports Helm for the blue snake. And what does it find there? Behind one end of the bar sits Jefferson Peters, octopus, with a six-shooter on each side of him, ready to make change or corpses as the case may be. There are three bartenders, and on the wall is a ten-foot sign reading, All drinks one dollar. Andy sits on the safe in his neat blue suit and gold-banded cigar, on the lookout for emergencies. The town marshal is there with two deputies to keep order, having been promised free drinks by the trust. Well, sir, it took Bird City just ten minutes to realize that it was in a cage. We expected trouble, but there wasn't any. The citizens saw that we had them. The nearest railroad was thirty miles away, and it would be two weeks at least before the river would be fordable. So they began to cuss, amiable, and throw down dollars on the bar till it sounded like a selection on the xylophone. There was about fifteen hundred grown-up adults in Bird City that had arrived at years of indiscretion, and the majority of them required three to twenty drinks a day to make life endurable. The Blue Snake was the only place where they could get them till the flood subsided. It was beautiful and simple, as all truly great swindles are. About ten o'clock the silver dollars dropping on the bar slowed down to playing two-steps and marches instead of jigs. 
but I looked out of the window and saw a hundred or two of our customers standing in line at Bird City Savings and Loan Company, and I knew they were borrowing more money to be sucked in by the clammy tendrils of the octopus. At the fashionable hour of noon everybody went home to dinner. We told the bartenders to take advantage of the law and do the same. Then me and Andy counted the receipts. We had taken in thirteen hundred dollars. We calculated that if Bird City would only remain an island for two weeks, the trust would be able to endow the Chicago University with a new dormitory of padded cells for the faculty, and present every worthy poor man in Texas with a farm, provided he furnished the site for it. Andy was especially inroaded by self-esteem at our success, the rudiments of the scheme having originated in his own surmises and premonitions. He got off the safe and lit the biggest cigar in the house. Jeff, says he, I don't suppose that anywhere in the world you could find three cormorants with brighter ideas about down-treading the proletariat than the firm of Peters, Satan, and Tucker, Incorporated. We have sure handed the small consumer a giant blow in his sole apoplectic region, no? Well, says I, it does look as if we would have to take up gastritis and golf or be measured for kilts in spite of ourselves. This little turn of bug juice, verily, is all on the ski-bow, and I can stand it, says I. I'd rather batten than bant any day. Andy pours himself out four fingers of our best rye and does with it as was so intended. It was the first drink I had ever known him to take. By way of liberation, says he, to the gods. And then, after thus doing umbrage to the heathen diabetes, he drinks another to our success. And then he begins to toast the trade, beginning with Rasuli and the North Pacific, and on down the line to the little ones like the schoolbook combine and the oleomargarine outrages and the Lehigh Valley and Great Scott Coal Federation. It's all right, Andy, says I, to drink the health of our brother monopolists, but don't overdo the wassail. You know our most eminent and loathed multi-corporationists live on weak tea and dog biscuits. Andy went in the back room a while and came out dressed in his best clothes. There was a kind of murderous and soulful look of gentle riotousness in his eye that I didn't like. I watched him to see what turn the whiskey was going to take in him. There are two times when you can never tell what is going to happen. One is when a man takes his first drink, and the other is when a woman takes her latest. In less than an hour Andy's skate had turned to an ice yacht. He was outwardly decent and managed to preserve his aquarium, but inside he was impromptu and full of unexpectedness. Jeff, says he, do you know that I'm a crater, a living crater? That is a self-evident hypothesis, says I. But you're not Irish. Why don't you say creature according to the rules and syntax of America? I'm the crater of a volcano, says he. I'm all aflame and crammed inside with an assortment of words and phrases that have got to have an exodus. I can feel millions of synonyms and parts of speech rising in me, says he, and I've got to make a speech of some sort. Drink, says Andy, always drives me to oratory. It could do no worse, says I. From my earliest recollections, says he, alcohol seemed to stimulate my sense of recitation and rhetoric. Why, in Bryan's second campaign, says Andy, they used to give me three gin 
and I'd speak for two hours longer than Billy himself could on the silver question. Finally, they persuaded me to take the gold cure. If you've got to get rid of your excess verbiage, says I, why not go out on the river bank and speak a piece? It seems to me there was an old spellbinder named Cantharides that used to go and disincorporate himself of his windy numbers along the seashore. No, says Andy, I must have an audience. I feel that if I once turn loose, people would begin to call Senator Beveridge the grand young sphinx of the Wabash. I've got to get an audience together, Jeff, and get this oriole distension assuaged, or it may turn on me, and I'd go about feeling like a deckle-edge edition deluxe of Mrs. E. D. E. N. Southworth. On what special subject of the theorems and topics does your desire for vocality seem to be connected with, I asks. I ain't particular, says Andy. I'm equally good and varicose on all subjects. I can take up the matter of Russian immigration, or the poetry of John W. Keats, or the tariff, or cable literature, or drainage, or make my audience weep, cry, sob, and shed tears by turns. Well, Andy, says I, if you're bound to get rid of this accumulation of vernacular, suppose you go out in town and work it on some indulgent citizen. Me and the boys will take care of the business. Everybody will be through dinner pretty soon, and salt pork and beans makes a man pretty thirsty. We ought to take in fifteen hundred dollars more by midnight. So Andy goes out of the blue snake, and I see him stopping men on the street and talking to em. By and by he has half a dozen in a bunch listening to him. Pretty soon I see him waving his arms and elocuting at a good-sized crowd on a corner. When he walks away, they string out after him, talking all the time, and he leads them down the main street of Bird City, with more men joining in the procession as they go. It reminded me of the old ledger domain that I had read about in books about the Pied Piper of Heidsick, charming the children away from the town. One o'clock came, and then two, and then three got under the wire for place, and not a bird citizen came in for a drink. The streets were deserted except for some ducks and ladies going to the stores. There was only a light drizzle falling then. A lonesome man came along and stopped in front of the blue snake to scrape the mud off his boots. Pardner, says I, what has happened? This morning there was hectic gaiety afoot, and now it seems more like one of them ruined cities of Tyre and Siphon, where the zone lizard crawls on the walls of the main portcullis. The whole town, says the muddy man, is up in Sperry's wool warehouse listening to your sidekicker make a speech. He is some gravy on delivering himself of audible sounds relating to matters and conclusions, says the man. Well, I hope he'll adjourn sine qua non pretty soon, says I, for trade languishes. Not a customer did we have that afternoon. At six o'clock, two Mexicans brought Andy to the saloon, lying across the back of a burrow. We put him in bed while he still muttered and gesticulated with his hands and feet. Then I locked up the cash and went out to see what had happened. I met a man who told me all about it. Andy made the finest two-hour speech that had ever been heard in Texas, he said, or anywhere else in the world. Well, what was it about, I asked. Temperance, says he. And when he got through, every man in Bird City signed the pledge for a year. End of chapter 1